Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life and leave me alone and let me listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank Billy Joel for writing that song about his favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. I am John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling. It is a weekly podcast uh, that covers pro wrestling from the 70s 80s and 90s generally we go outside those parameters sometimes um before we get started i want to invite you number one to join our facebook group it's a lot of cool guys talking wrestling and whatever else uh number two um follow me on twitter just search john mcadam and follow the guy who has the stick to wrestling logo as his avatar i don't always stick to wrestling i just tweeted out something that i didn't agree with the red sox trading for kurt schilling uh 17 years ago today and that's it don't let me run a baseball team but with that i want to bring on a popular returning guest he is Canadian, so that means he is our politest guest, Jace K.O. Nakarado. Jace, thank you for coming back. Well, John, thank you very much for having me. And uh, I don't know if I'm the most popular, but I have been a frequent guest. So, you know, maybe – did you get the money that I sent you like, sure, to, sure, sure, to sure, say sure, sure. this line that you – We don't you talk gave? about that. Oh, yeah. sorry. I was going to ask too, with the, with the Billy Joel reference, are you trying to get in Chris Zaha's good books or what's going on? How much did he have to pay you in order to – do the Billy is Joel he line. like a Billy Joel guy? Apparently. Well, he's a big Kevin Nash guy. I know that. <laughs> well, he's a big Kevin Nash apologist, but we'll have to look into You see, join our Facebook, and you can see me sort of confront Chris Zauhau about this Billy Joel thing, whatever we're talking about, Mr. Easy Listening over there. I'm a big Oz fan, so like I do agree with him on some aspects of Kevin Nash's career. And again, from the limited, you know, WCW knowledge that I do have, I do like Oz. I think he's kind of my guilty pleasure. I still got to watch quite a bit of Vinny Vegas, but I I agree with Chris on something. Oh, I mean, I, I I don't agree with Chris on anything, quite frankly. But anyway, <laughs> we we have a cool show coming up. Uh, Jace, not Chris, Jace and I are going to talk about Get it right. a Madison Square Garden show from almost 50 years ago. It is the earliest uh, Madison Square Garden World Re- Worldwide Wrestling Federation show available. It is from uh, June 30th, 1973. Jace, I believe this, this was before my time, let alone anyone else's. I'm 57. Jace, this is way before you were even born. Yeah, this is about... 16 years before I was born, and my math also sucks. And I was a teacher, so I mean, you'd think that I'd have a grasp on math by now. But yes, this is probably the oldest thing that I have seen in terms of WWF fandom. And even then, too, I like I've maybe mentioned in the past, and like I've mentioned maybe on the show or social media, I'm not the most knowledgeable about, you know, 70s and early 80s WWF. So I thought this was a really interesting show to choose, and I'm excited to talk about it. That is why I wanted you to do this show, because this is all uh, you're looking at this with a completely fresh set of eyes. And I, I like that perspective. Yeah, and there's a lot to talk about for sure. There's a lot of guys on here that obviously I have heard of. I have seen clippings of. 
but I got to see work for the first time, especially work in the New York area and the New York market. Yeah, we'll just jump into it. There's uh, there's a lot I will be interspersing about my perspectives, but uh, lead me by the nose <laughs> ring, John. I will do that. All right. Now, one thing about this show, this is not just the earliest wrestling show out there, or WWF wrestling show, I should say. It is from the earliest days of cable television. Uh, cable was in its infancy at this point, and it really shows that you know they're still just kind of trying to figure a lot of it out. Yeah, and I thought it was. I knew about the home box office connection with the early wwwf stuff but when it comes to you know the network that uh the msg network eventually i'm assuming in the late 80s early 90s all that stuff is completely new and foreign to me so i'd love to hear more if we do end up talking about it on the show but yeah it's very early and uh, the video was very good in terms of uh what the archivist managed to do in terms of cleaning it up. I so, agree. Yeah, I thought it looked great. I agree. They did a really good job of it. Now, one thing, it's also this show to me was very much kind of a, a time capsule because I wasn't a wrestling fan yet, but I, I was a little kid. I was cognizant. I he knew what was going on around me. And one thing I noticed, one of the first things I noticed is that there is cigarette smoke everywhere. And yes, ladies yes. and gentlemen, I'm telling you, that's the way the world was 50 years ago, everyone smoked everywhere. People smoked at work. They smoked at the library. They smoked on the train. You name it. Even to me, it's just that whole, you know, old aesthetic. And I say old in quotation marks, but it's it's that, you know, ring lights only. You can't really see past maybe five rows of ringside. And that's the way that I think wrestling should continue to be. But or neither here nor there. It's just a big production show now. So, and we'll we'll talk more about that, like how different the wrestling was, not just different than now, but like way different than even ten or twenty years later. Very different. Yes. First match, we have Blackjack Lonza against Lee Wong. Lee Wong has a reputation of being just the worst. I mean, like the worst wrestler ever. In this match, I don't know if you knew that coming in. In this match, I didn't think he was terrible. I'm not saying he was Satoru Sayama or anything, but I didn't think he was that bad. No, no. And I had never heard of Lee Wong before this. And um, when I first saw him, we'll talk about the match, obviously. I had shades of, if there's any, you know, I'm sure there's fans of, you know, cross uh, podcasting of uh, the 605 Super Podcast. There was a wrestler in Georgia, I believe in the late 70s, early 80s, named Marion Crumley. And he was kind of a, a dumpy looking guy. And he had a really awful match with the Masked Superstar on television. Lee Wong kind of reminded me of him, but not as bad. But <laughs> I knew that it wasn't going to be anything special when I first started. Uh, no, and he was around for the WWF for a while. I think he was around in the early 80s. They announced him as, you know, from Hong Kong, Lee Wong, and everyone got a chortle out of that one. Uh, this is a basic TV squash. It's really a little bit different than your typical Madison Square Garden opener. Usually you have Lee Wong against someone at Lee Wong's level. Those are, we're usually like the two, first two or three matches, but here we have a guy who's a star, Blackjack Lonza, going up against him. Lonza, had a rep as being a terrible worker. I didn't think he was that bad here, Jace. No, neither did I. I thought there were some there was one spot in the match that I don't know really thought they should have done, but I yeah, and again, I based on the limited knowledge that I have of 
Blackjack Lonza and eventually, you know, him forming with Mulligan, uh, maybe a year or two later, or if they hadn't already, I knew about Lonza's stuff with Bobby Duncan and the AWA, but I didn't think it was a terrible match. I thought it was funny because you were talking about Hong Kong Lee Wong. They announced him from Ecuador. <laughs> oh, and what I wrote in the notes, I wrote, what I wrote, what I wrote in the notes was, when I think of the surname Wong, I, I clearly think of Ecuador. And I laughed because I'm like, that's the silliest thing that I've ever heard. But anyways, people migrate to different places. I think it's, it is what it is. But yeah, I, I think starting from the beginning, I was, <laughs> I didn't, I don't know a lot about, you know, Madison Square Garden announcers. I don't think the announcer was ever named on the show, but I, because I knew that obviously Howard Finkel came a little bit later. I didn't know if Joe McHugh ever did Madison Square Garden. I knew he obviously did the TV tapings for Championship Wrestling in Allentown or Hamburg or anything like that. He did not do, no. Okay. So I don't know who this guy was, but he looked like a Paul Bosch lookalike from the North. And he looked like he raided Boyd Pierce's closet because that was the weirdest suit that I've ever seen. It was like a, like a fake Doctor Who kind of weird pin, not pinstripe, just a weird circular suit. I don't know. He was, he was mispronouncing names when he mispronounced Lanza's Lazanza and Lanza's standing right in front of him, right in front of the hard cam. And he goes to turn to point to the corner and he's not there and he gets all confused on his face. I was dying laughing, but it was, it was something so silly and so stupid that I'm like, okay, after write this down, I'm sure John will appreciate it. I, I thought it was funny. I, I laughed at it. The announcer is definitely in my notes. I mean, it's just the way it went with the New York State Athletic Commission back in the day. You know, my Uncle Bob likes wrestling. We'll make him the ring announcer, despite the fact that Uncle Bob has no qualifications whatsoever. He can't even read off the card. I mean, the, the guy was awful. <laughs> And some of the referees, too, were a little bit questionable because it's names that I've never heard before. I don't know if it was the standard of the time for the referees to dress like custodial staff in schools. The weird gray kind of shirt and pants in my notes. The referee looks like if Archie Bunker and Dustin Hoffman had sex and had a love <laughs> child. Because that's kind of what he looks like. And he was kind of like this middling, I don't want to give the New Yorker thing like, eh, I'm going to, but it was just so funny just because he was just kind of middling in the background and he looked kind of slow and I'm like, oh my God. So I laughed. I don't, I don't know. I, I, but overall, when it came to the match, the only thing that I was really kind of eh on was the mic spot when Lanza took the microphone and draped and didn't even do the full circular choke, but just kind of had the slack on the microphone and was pushing against Lee Wong's thing. I didn't really think that that was needed. I didn't think that that was justified being used in the in a preliminary match. It looked really odd to me. What did you think? I, I, my immediate thought was, in 1973, that is supposed to be an automatic disqualification, and Lonza should yes. know better. Like you don't not only do you not do that in the opener, you know, you don't do that in a a, a match in eight in ninety in ninety I, I tried saying eighty-three, then I went for ninety-three in nineteen seventy-three. That is a disqualification. That's a foreign object. And I was a little bit taken aback by that. You know, obviously as time went on, that's a nothing spot, but here we are. Yes, and in all honesty, I completely it went over my head about the automatic disqualification. I thought it was funny that he grabbed Vince's microphone too. Yeah. Cause Vince's table, Vince's table was right in front. So I was wondering if he was kind of giving me the Iggy on something, like maybe like, Oh, I'll show you for, 
maybe being in the prelim spot. I don't know. But in terms of the entire show, this was probably my least favorite match out of the entire thing. I was just kind of bored. And I'm like, oh, oh boy. <laughs> I was worried going in. I'm like, I I hope it gets a little bit better. But it, it did get quite a bit better. But this one was definitely skeptical. I, you know, Jace, there were there was a couple of times when I'm like, okay, this was really your idea to watch this show. And it was it turned out not to be as bad as I originally feared. I, I think I've told this story on the show before, maybe 15 years ago, long, a little bit longer than that. Uh, one of my friends got a Madison Square Garden show on DVD from 1976. And this is back when, you know, I had never seen this before. This is back when, you know, WWE 24 seven was on like four cable systems and, you know, no one had it around here, but this guy knew someone, he gave me a copy. He hadn't seen it before. And I'm like, I'm like, you know, wow, I'm really you know, looking forward to watching this tonight. He's like, yeah, me too. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't be because nothing happens. I get to relive my childhood a little bit. You're just going to be bored. And he emails me the next day. He was like, it was even worse than you described. <laughs> Nothing happened. <laughs> but ah, anyway, that was it sold tickets and it made people happy. And I'll get more into that as the show goes on. But one thing that made me laugh, Lee Wong comes to the ring wearing, uh, I believe, a robe and sandals. And, you know, he takes the sandals off, puts them in the corner, and Blackjack Mulligan attacks him with the sandals. These are like pool sandals that he's using on Lee Wong. <laughs> yeah, it was the original Paul Orndorff Invader uh, <laughs> back in 1973. All right. Second match, we have Professor Toru Tanaka against El Olimpico. Tanaka is a big star in the WWF. He had main events previously against guys like Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales for the championship. El Olimpico is a typical jobber to the stars type. He's a, you know, he would beat a Lee Wong, but he's losing to Toru Tanaka every single time. And Jace, what, what were your thoughts on either Tanaka or Olympico? My first time seeing El Olympico, uh, I had heard of his name before and I'd seen, you know, clippings of him. It's a shame that this was during, obviously, the no mask period in MSG because what he was wearing looked absolutely ridiculous. And I don't know if that's what, uh, you know, Don Jardine looked like when he was the spoiler, like before he was, you know, Don Jardine without the mask. The only thing that reminded me of it, I didn't know if it was like a swimmer's cap or like a fencing mask without the mesh on the front, but it was like that kind of headgear kind of thing. And the only time that I remember actually seeing something like that was, it was on Facebook. I think it was either popular guest Scott Cornish or Brian Last had a photo from Smoky Mountain Fan Week in 94, and it was like a picture of Chris Candido. And he was kind of wearing kind of the same thing. And I didn't know if it was like what the gimmick was, like if it was Candido doing like the no noise thing, kind of like when Stan Lane would wear the headgear. No, gear. he lost a he lost a match where he had to wear a baby bonnet and he or if he didn't win a match, he, he had to win a match on TV or he had to wear a baby bonnet and the baby faces would mess with him so he couldn't win a match. Okay, it looked like a that's a weird looking baby bonnet, but yeah, I don't know. It looked like a fencing mask without the front on it, so it just looked so weird if somebody was a masked wrestler normally and coming in with their face kind of poking out like one of those cardboard cutouts at the fair. <laughs> it's got like the thing on it, but um, yeah, I, well, that was a long way of you know getting around it, but yeah, I, the match was okay. I've always liked Toru Tanaka. I thought I like him a lot more than Mr. Fuji. I've never understood the appeal of Fuji as a wrestler, obviously, and a manager, because he was crap. But um, 
this was actually my first time seeing Mrs. Krieger because she obviously comes up and wipes the salt when Fuji's doing his ritual, uh, excuse me, when Tanaka's doing his ritualistic salt routine. John, do you know if Mrs. Krieger only did this for the Japanese wrestlers, or would she do this to other heels as well? She would taunt the other heels as well, but Tanaka and Fuji would make it easy because they brought the salt to the ring, and she would just you know, they, and they would just let her do it. She'd walk up to the apron and she'd like knock the salt off. She'd you know she'd remove the salt from the ring. Can't this woman just leave t- Mr. Tanaka alone and let him chase away the evil demons from the ring? It's incredibly important in Shintoism to purify oneself. So shame on Mrs. Krieger for not shame. being as woke as the rest of us shame are. Shame on all Toy, those involved, those people who allowed her to do this when they could have restrained her. And we've got evil spirits all over the place now. The baby bonnet. That's exactly what it looked like to me. With El Olimpico coming out with this thing. I, I've seen this show before. I saw it like 10 years ago for the first time, but I hadn't seen it since. And I, I remember laughing at the baby bonnet. You know, the, the New York State Athletic Commission, which is a very dumb thing anyway. You know, they were they they tried to have wrestling adhere to the same rules as boxing. And in boxing, obviously, you can't wear a mask to protect your face from punches. So they decided that wrestlers couldn't wear a mask either. Uh, El Olimpico decided to just have a cutout. So his face was showing Uh, when the spoiler wrestled in New York City. He wrestled just without a mask as just Don Jardine. Okay. Because I had seen him without, I've seen pictures of him obviously coming into the building and in the building without. I didn't know if he specifically wore the mask cut out, you know, in the ring. But no, he sense. just bagged the um, mask. Yeah. No, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to the actual match itself, which I didn't answer your question at all, no, so I apologize. Cool. Yeah, it was it was all right. I mean, it. Th- and again, when it came to the show, and and like I said. I understand that this is a moment in time, and I understand that the New York territory is a lot more slower. It's a lot more into some psychology aspects in terms of a little bit of humor. Like there was a little bit of comedy spots when it came to Olympico sticking his finger in Tanaka's ear and kind of throwing him off balance and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't mind it. I mean, it was the crowd seemed a little quiet at times, but you know, I thought that they were kind of getting into it at the end, but. Yeah, it was it was a decent match. I, I didn't mind it at all. No, it wasn't a bad match at all. And one thing, you know, wrestling, if you watch wrestling from the 50s and the 60s, it is not a spot fest. You know, if you uh, beal someone, the crowd goes nuts, If you know, because now it, it, that's exciting after five minutes of headlocks. In this case, the crowd just pops big time. When El Olimpico gets a drop kick in on, on Tanaka and, you know, Tanaka... I mean, he was a tank, man. He was a big, thick guy. Yes, and he continued to be big and thick, too, because how I first knew of Tanaka, you know, obviously I didn't see him during his heyday, but uh, when he was the bodyguard and last action hero with um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like he was still pretty thick then, and that was like 93, 94. That was 93, and I thought you were going to say Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I actually have never seen Pee-wee's Big Adventure, so if anybody else has a reason to hate me on social media... You can add this to the fueling on the fire. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Just turn your brain off and watch it, and it's very funny. There were some extremely funny moments in that movie, but anyway. Um, all right. And, you, you know, yeah, we're looking at a time. Again, I love the time capsule aspect. We are 
what, like not even 30 years, not even close to 30 years removed from World War II. And we have the stereotypical uh, Japanese heels. And, you know, there were probably two dozen of them in the business in the United States. And Tanaka was one of the big stars. And they, and they all played that that stereotype that we kind of look down on today. But, you know, it, it's 1973, man. People foreigner, yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. You know, like it's a moment in time. Next match is Gorilla Monsoon against Captain Lou Albano. I, I can't help but notice that the, the cigarette smoke has really kicked in here. These guys are practically wrestling in a cloud. Yes, 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 they were. Yeah, Lou looked great. Like, I mean, you know, you see Lou when he's a little bit later in the 70s and he's kind of filled out like a little bit more. He looked like he was in fighting fit. He looked really good. And uh, I'm surprised that he didn't openly try to gig himself on the camera. <laughs> but uh, I think uh, Big Gino probably would have, uh, you know, smartened him up a little bit if he did. But yeah, yeah, it was, it, I thought this was a really good match. I didn't mind it at all. Lou, you know, got his uh, offense in doing a little bit of the cheap shot. Yeah, Monsoon was huge. I mean, like, I knew that he was a big, he was a big boy for being, uh, found in a river pond in Manchuria or wherever <laughs> he was from, but <laughs> a red berry reference. But yeah, I, I thought this was what it was. It wasn't a bad thing. The crowd was popping. I think the finish was good. You know, Lou going over the top rope and just running to the back. <laughs> And being counted out. I learned as as a fan, you know, become as I learned gradually as a fan that they did this every two or three years. They did this match. Captain Lou Albano would wrestle a match against a guy like Gorilla Monsoon, who even in 1973 was on the downside of his career. And, you know, they would have him come out, you know, get in a few cheap shots, then get the crap beat out of him. Sometimes he'd bleed and he'd run to the back and the fans loved it. And it's something you couldn't overdo it by meeting by doing it more than every three years. But I remember like Albano did it in 83. I'm like, okay, I've already seen this before. Yeah. Who did he do it in 83 with? Was it with um, Snuka? Was it with Snuka? Snuka. I was going to say, yeah, makes sense with the, uh, that they had. Yeah, and he did it with uh, Patterson a few years before that. And, you know, it was, it was like I said, it was something they bring out of mothballs every three years. Albano gets the crap knocked out of him. One thing I never understood, obviously, you know, Albano, Monsoon makes his comeback. Albano, like, takes off, runs to the dressing room, and the fans go crazy. They love it. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, why? What, don't you want to see Albano get take it, take more shots from Gorilla Monsoon? <laughs> yeah, I actually never, I didn't even think about that at all. But yeah, they were just going nuts. They just wanted, I guess, just to see him get humiliated a little bit and not, you know, completely killed. But <laughs> yeah, I, I guess like they, it. Were, it they were satisfied with what was on their plate. Yes. Good way of looking at it. All right. Uh, next match, Victor Rivera against Black Gordman. Um, I thought this was the best match on the show. John Jantz, who I haven't had on the show in too long, I got to have him back. He, he about three years ago, he was on the show and he just presented an alternative WWF universe that just blew my mind. He said that he thought they made a mistake putting the belt on Pedro Morales and that they should have put it on Victor Rivera. And when I watched this match, I'm like. I thought Rivera really was, and this is New York, you know, because you have that different standard. I thought he was a little bit small for that role. 
Yeah, I think looking back at it now in my head, yeah, that that does make sense. Kind of following what you were saying and just kind of going from the top, this was, yeah, probably one of my two favorite matches on the show. This was actually the first time that I've ever seen Victor Rivera wrestle, and given the context, he was over. Like, the crowd was popping for him. And when it comes to a couple of the matches in the show, and I'll get to that comparison when we get to it, I was very surprised at how much Victor Rivera was loved by the crowd. And I I can understand it now because he jumped ship in two years later, I guess, to the IWA. And I know that he had a lot of momentum and he was, you know, tag champions. Was it with Dominic Tanucci? It was with Tanucci, yes. Tanucci, because then he got replaced with Irish Pat Barrett in the tag team. And then I remember hearing, I think it was from somebody, saying that when Rivera came back after the IWA folded, he was a heel. And, you know, some people say that that was Vince Sr.'s way of getting back at Rivera. And apparently, from what people have said, Rivera was never as good in terms of the fans' eyes as he was at this period. So, yeah, I thought it was really cool to kind of see the crowd going nuts for him. I also really liked uh, to see Vince providing some context in terms of what's going on in Los Angeles between Black Gordon and Victor Rivera. Like, he, you know, mentioned that. I don't know how much he did in that day when it came to other territories. Obviously, with... Some of the stuff with the NWA when, you know, when uh, they would have matches for the title in Madison Square Garden. But I just thought it was interesting to hear Vince's perspective in terms of giving context. Yeah, and, and they didn't do that very often, but they, they did do it occasionally. Victor Rivera came back to the WWF, uh, I want to say August or September 1976, and he was there for maybe six or seven months. And you could tell... I mean, it's it's obvious his push was not the equivalent of what he was getting earlier in the decade. He was not really a jobber to the stars, but he was clearly a few steps behind even guys like Ivan Putsky, Bobo Brazil, Chief J Strongbow, etc. He was, you know, the next step down. And then when he came back in 1978 as a heel, he had already been a turned heel in Los Angeles, which I had read in the magazines. And I remember when they, they announced Victor Rivera returning, you know, this week on championship wrestling, thinking, oh, man, is he going to be a good guy or a bad guy? And he came out with the go- with the facial hair with Fred Blassie. I'm like, oh, wow, he's taking the, the heel thing out here. So I don't think they, you know, a lot of the time when a, when a wrestler uh, wrestles for, you know, an, an outlaw group like the IWA or whatever, you always hear, oh, he'll never get another job in the business again. And guess what? They, they, always, they always got taken back, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, I've heard the comparison of, you know, Victor Rivera having to turn heel when he came back. Uh, I guess the same thing comparable would be Sergeant Slaughter when he came back in 1990, you know, when he turned heel. And people say that that was uh, Vince sticking it to Slaughter and saying, okay, you want to do this, be heel. I know I've heard some things saying that Slaughter maybe wanted to try to be a heel, but obviously things would get a little bit escalated when it came to the the golf crisis and everything like that. But story for another day. Yeah, I, I... Kind of, I mean, I never thought that it was Vince sticking it to slaughter. I think that, and this is just my my theory that you know he, Vince felt that that Sergeant Slaughter babyface thing had been going on for six years and had been it had run its course. And really, if he was out to stick it to slaughter, I mean, he got the WWF Championship. He main evented a WrestleMania. I mean, I'd stick it to me like that, right? Yeah, uh, that makes sense. I just try to piece it together in my mind and my mind isn't necessarily always the most coherent at times but 
<laughs> it's good to try to figure I think it out. You're, I think you're doing great, Jace. One thing in this match, and it, it, again, it's it's such a throwback. They had a long sleeper hold. Black Gorman had Victor Rivera in a yes. sleeper hold forever. And instead of yelling boring or whatever, like the crowd gets into it. It was, it was such a different era. They were like, you know, cheering Victor on to get out of that hold and win the match. Yes. And my thought process too. And again, when it, I try to kind of disconnect my smart mind versus what I'm seeing live, I didn't, the crowd blew at the absolute end of the match. There was a second sleeper spot. After a small comeback and they get into yep. it again. I didn't know if the second spot was needed, but then again, they went home pretty quick after that. So it, it threw me off a little bit, but I think that the final sequence that they did really, you know, the place loved it because they absolutely blew their socks off. Yeah. Rivera was, I mean, he was beloved in New York City and I think he was. It, it, this, in my opinion, this was the best match on the show, and Victor Rivera was the best performer on the show. Yes, I agree to both those things. Now we have a ladies' match: Dottie Downs and Peggy Patterson versus Jan Sheridan and Joyce Grable. I don't know what it was like in New York City when the girls wrestled. When either the women's matches or the midget matches in Boston, as soon as we got a whiff that it might be the women or the midget. It wasn't just me. You'd see guys sprinting to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Because if you if you wanted to use the bathroom during intermission, chances are you were going to get stuck in a line and you were going to miss some of the first match after the intermission. Or if you wanted to get a pretzel or something, the lines were such that you were going to miss it. It was funny. People would, you know, like I said, they would literally sprint to either the bathroom or concession stand. But then again, they kept getting booked. And I think the promoters knew what they were doing. Yes. And when it came to the show, like I said, I wanted to go into it blind. But, you know, I'm I'm like a kid at Christmas. You kind of want to rip open a little bit of the wrapping on one of your gifts just to see what's inside yeah. a little bit. So I decided to go to the history of WWE.com ran by, you know, Richard Land and Graham Cawthorn. And they had the match listings along with the times. Before I saw this match, I was incredibly shocked and aghast to see that this match went 20 minutes. Yep. And my jaw hit the floor. <laughs> I really tried to not let it re influence like how I was going to look at this, but you know, watching the match with the three falls, with the best two out of three falls, it actually didn't seem super long to me. Like, it didn't seem like 20 minutes, but then again, I also have a memory of a parakeet, so, you know, anything could really distract me. But it, it didn't seem like 20 minutes. But I agree with you completely when it comes to the, you know, little people in the women's matches. I'm definitely okay with a controversial opinion and getting canceled. Uh, I'm not a big fan of women's wrestling. You know, it's, it, it is what it is. I think that they're incredible athletes today. It's just, it never tickled my fancy. Um, I'm sure if I wanted to watch some all Japan women's stuff, if anybody wants to link any, you know, Bull Nakano stuff or Dump Matsumoto stuff, please feel free. But North American women's wrestling, I just, not my bag. 
baby. Yeah, I mean, you, you know what? I, like, I was not a fan of this sort of wrestling. I do enjoy the women's matches nowadays. And, I mean, the, the women that WWE and AEW have, I mean, you know, it, it's just the way the sport, what's what I'm looking for? It, it, it's just the way the sport evolves that, you know, what they were doing in Japan women's wrestling in the 80s and 90s it just gets blown away today. I mean, you know, it's it's just the way it goes. It's a it's an evolutionary sort of thing, Jace. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm not taking anything away from any of the performers today. Wrestlers, excuse me. Clearly not. No, you're not. <laughs> no. But no, no, but I mean, like, yeah, like, I, you know, I respect, you know, especially Charlotte Flair just seeing clips, Rhea Ripley, every dominatrix's fantasy as well. So. Yeah. Get too much into that, but um, did I say that? I don't think so. Um, I don't think you did. You're right. You're right. I'll keep that to myself, mommy. (laughs) Um, But I think, but I think too, it's um, yeah. I I respect it, but it's just uh, it's not my bag. And this match, poor Peggy Patterson, Triple P. I feel so bad for her because Vince is constantly using the big girl reference, like oh, well, that's uh. The here comes the big gal Patterson. Well, <laughs> bigger of the two because they're both big. I'm like Jesus Christ, Vince. But I I kind of laughed a little bit. But I feel bad that that's what it amounted to because you know it when it comes to you know women, it is a visual thing as well. And yeah, you kind of have to unfortunately mention oh they're pretty or oh they're big or oh they're kind of clumsy. So I had a good laugh, but poor Peggy Patterson. Vince is just constantly on her all match. Jace, um, I mean, when I first, and by the way, I agree with you, like, soccer, the World Cup is going on right now, right? And I respect. Is it? Oh, uh, yeah, it yeah, is. I, I think it might be. And, you know, I, I certainly respect uh, I wasn't the athletes, but I, I'm not going to watch a second of that. It just doesn't appeal to me. And, you know, just like the women's wrestling doesn't appeal to you. It's, you know, totally cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is what it is. But, I mean, overall, when it comes to the match, um, <laughs> I, there were some interesting spots, like, yeah, but it was mostly just, you know, hair pulling, a little bit of sleeper holds, uh, a lot of chest shots, like pushing somebody right in the chestal area and pushing them down. I, I will say that the crowd wasn't as dead as I thought it was going to be. There was actually quite a bit of noise at certain points in the match. I thought it was just going to be a complete, you know, like popcorn show and people just getting out of their seats. But the, the crowd did seem kind of into it at that time, so... Yeah, I mean, it was what it was. I, I didn't mind it. I didn't think it was 20 minutes, but it wasn't my cup of well, tea. Well, I, I mean, there were a lot of guys, like, whistling at the girls, and my immediate yes. uh, reaction was, you guys got to get out of the house a little bit more. I mean, you know, I'm not trying to be <laughs> insulting, but, like, these women, Joyce Grable is cute, but the rest of them, my God. I mean, and, and Jace, my reaction upon seeing these women was, you know what? I have not watched Goodfellas in like two years, and I think I need to because all four of them looked like something out of the haggard housewives scene in Goodfellas. And I was waiting for one of them to tell the rest, you know, you put your fucking hands on me, I'll chop them off for you. I mean, they looked horrible with those beehive haircuts that were, I mean, just bleached to death. Uh, and, and a lot of women looked like that in the, in the early 70s. That's what I got a kick out of too. I just love the hairstyles coming. And like you said, like, you know, Joyce Grable's, or was it Judy? It was Joyce. It was Joyce. I'm sorry. Cause Judy was the, the 
older, um, non-related one. Yeah, I, she had great hairstyle, but yeah, it was just really funny seeing, you know, the two heels having those, you know, 60s style haircuts. Dottie was kind of rough around the edge. She's like, like kind of yelling at the ref a little bit. And I, another funny spot was when they were all together kind of at the front. Vince is saying, oh, the ref is uh, trying to get a date with these ladies. So I, don't, I don't know if that'll happen. I'm like, he's oh. talking about, oh, he, he won't mind checking them for foreign objects. I'm like, well, I would. <laughs> Dottie Downs. Oh, boy. I, I looked up how old she was. I was thinking, okay, she's probably. She looked old. She's probably. How old do you think she was? She looked like such a grizzled vet. Like, take a guess. How old? I thought, Lance, probably like 32, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was younger. We're talking Dottie Downs here? Yeah, because again, right. I, I try to think that people people look older than they did then. I, I'd say like mid thirties. I thought she I was. thought I was like, okay, she has got to be like mid forties, and I even took that into account. Like you know, okay, people just looked older back then. You right. are correct. She was in her mid thirties. Wow, good one for me. Put that one on the fridge. I was stunned. I was like, you know, and like I said, you watch old TV shows, you watch this match, and you're like, you know, wow, people certainly aged differently back then. They, you know, didn't exercise as much. They didn't eat as well. And even if you didn't smoke, you were going to get smoked on. And, yeah, she was just a a living proof of that. Well, it's the days of, uh, you know, Phil Esposito of the Boston Bruins smoking and eating chicken in between periods in the locker room. So (laughs) We've all heard that story. You know. Uh, yeah, like you, I thought 20 minutes was just way too long for this match. It felt like they were filling and killing time. That's pretty much what it was. And, and again, like I said, it's the woman's match. It's in the middle of the show. It's uh, going to be a break for most yeah, people. Exactly. Now we go to the main event. Pedro Morales against George the Animal Steel. Jace, this is the moment where I realized this is the main event for the show, and I'm like, you sign. I, I look at myself. I'm like, you signed up for this voluntarily. You didn't get kicked, kicking and screaming into this because you know both no. guys were dreadful as the years went on. Now life is about expectations. Maybe my expert expectations were so low, but I didn't think this was a bad match at all. Neither did I. And again, like you said, my expectations were very low. When it comes to this kind of stuff, I, I obviously know about George Steele, you know, later on in the eighties when he's a bit more of a gimmick, a little more gimmicked up than what he was now. I knew about Pedro and I knew about comparisons of him when he was in LA and he was a little bit more of a, not a high flyer, but a little more energetic, I guess. And then when he came to New York, he really kind of slowed it down quite a bit. Yeah, my expectations were incredibly low going in. Like I said, when it came to the Victor Rivera match being one of my favorites, this was actually not bad. I like you said, I didn't mind it at no, all. No, and and this is important too. They they gave the people, the fans, what they came to see. And I I think that's important. I was actually very impressed by Pedro Morales here. I mean, he had a reputation as being, he got a little bit pudgy as his career went on. He he was in really good shape here. And he looked like, you know, he took a lot of time hitting that bench press. Yes. Yeah. He looked like a a little bit more of a fire plug, I guess, when it came to his physique. Obviously, I knew when the 80s came around, like he filled out quite a bit more, but yeah, I mean, like, I, so I have questions. And this is, this is the question period of the show when it comes to 
New York territory. I know you would know a lot more, so I'm gonna have some rapid fire questions oh, sure. for you very quick. Go, George the Animal Steel. I have seen him in '81 when he was doing the promos with Blassie against Backlund. I believe it was for Baltimore. And that's honestly one of my favorite points of Steele's career when he comes in and he's like, don't talk about the past, daddy. Talk about now. And he's saying Bobby Backlund and he's talking about an American nightmare and wanting to have a brawl against Backlund. Do you know in the late 60s, early 70s, if he was doing spoken promos or if he was still kind of in that weird like, hey, kind of thing like when he was in 81, sticking his tongue out? Because he was doing that a little bit in the match. Like he did have some coherent stuff with the ref, but he was also doing kind of the, you know, twitching and kind of the sticking his tongue out a little bit. Was he doing spoken promos at all, like in the early 70s? Yes, he was. As a matter of fact, I had someone tell me when George Steele came back in 1977 that it was a completely George, different George Steele than the one that had previously been there. Like he had, you know, he was a, a vicious heel Back in 77, he, he seemed a little bit off sometimes. Um, oh, this is back in 73, but, you know, and when he came back in 77, he really turned on the thing where, you know, if he would speak, he would say two words. Like, you know, just look at the camera and go, Bob Backlund? Hurt, you know, but before that, he was, you know, a bit more yeah. coherent and that just got worse and worse as time went on. And for those of you who saw him after his baby face turned in 1985, like, you know, he wasn't always like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm aware of that. I haven't seen too much of, you know, late 80s. George Steele. Second question, and this has to do with the previous conversations that you've had with guests when it comes to the usual three-match run with the champion. I knew this kind of fell into the category of kind of being, you know, one match being a maybe a disqualification, uh, one match being a blood stoppage, and usually the last match is some kind of grudge match, right? Like some kind of like, not Texas death, but something to have the champion come out on top. When it came to the formula with having runs against the champion, I know that Patterson had his four run, and usually it's two to three per person. Was that only limited to Madison Square Garden, or would it be combined with different venues like Spectrum or Boston Garden or Baltimore, something like that? What what, what can you tell me about that? Every venue was different. Uh, Patterson you know, was the only wrestler, as far as I know, to do four matches against the champion, not only in Madison Square Garden, but throughout the territory. As odd as this may sound, we did not get Bob Backlund versus Pat Patterson in Boston. We got Bruno Sammartino against Pat Patterson, which I believe was a two-match series that ended in a lumberjack match. And yeah, usually if, if you have... Uh, the, that, that third match is almost all, no, is always going to be some sort of a stipulation match, whether it be a Texas death match, a cage match, or, uh, something along those lines. I don't think, you know, they were still doing lumberjack or they were, they were doing lumberjack matches by the time the backland era came around. I don't think they did them when Bruno was champion. Um, but yeah, it would be some sort of like, uh, Bruno, uh, with, Spiros Arian had the Greek death match. It would be something like that. I do remember seeing something like that when it was Blassie and it was the Roman gladiator match. I remember seeing something like that, I think, in Madison Square Garden or um, Boston Garden or something like that. The only reason why I asked this was because looking at the, you know, referencing 
historyofwwe.com. Um, I wanted to see, you know, if this was the second or third match when it came to George Steele versus Pedro Morales. And this was the first, I guess. And I found it interesting just because of it being a blood stoppage for the first match. I always assumed that a blood stoppage would have been, you know, for the second match. Because next month they do come back to Madison Square Garden and it is a no-holds-bar match with George Steele and Pedro Morales. And Joe Lewis is the referee. So that would kind of be the blow-off. That would be the third big match. I I was just curious in terms of you know, if it was combined with other venues, because I was like, oh, it's kind of weird for the first of, you know, two matches or whatever to have the blood stoppage. I, I always assumed that it was some type of formula being the first being, you know, like a count out or some kind of screwy finish, et cetera, et cetera. So thank you for no, clarifying. No problem. And this is the only time I have ever seen George the Animal Steel bleed, whether it be in a match or even a, a pictures from a magazine. I have never seen him uh, bloodied until the, until here. The match was stopped when uh, it was stopped for blood when, when George Steele was bleeding too badly to continue, according to the referee. And that was a really unusual finish. Usually it was the baby face who had to have the match stopped and, you know, They'd have a rematch, and the heel would spend a month talking about, hey, I had this guy beat, and the referee stopped it. And in this match, they can't stop the match for blood, and I will be the new WWF champion. I was just going to say, I was going to ask if it was the baby face that got – you know, the blood on them. And that was the reason for the, for the loss or for the win, excuse me. But uh, yeah, just, and like I said, I just found it weird that the heel would get the blood and it was the first match of their two match run. And, th- and that was kind of the thing why I wanted to ask about, you know, the sequencing about the two to three match formula for the champion of Madison Square Garden. So yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I've never seen steel bloodied at all. So great comparison. Great point. And you know, one thing about this match or about this era, I should say, everything meant something like Pedro Morales would body slam George, the animal steel and the place would go nuts because that, you know, that back then it was just like headlocks and whatever. And then you'd get that spot move and the place would pop. And, you know, like I said, just a different era. I mean, a body slam is nothing today. It was nothing 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just the way the business changed. Unfortunately, I wish we could go back, but you know, now, John, if I wanted to meet you in the ring, I got to do 17 super kicks, three Canadian destroyers. I have to throw you through a table and then I might have to get maybe like the gut claw, like Killer Kowalski would have on his <laughs> stomach. And maybe that's how I, that's, that's probably the, the last thing that I would do to beat you. But yeah, it's just, it's a shame, but it was very interesting to see like how less is more. And that's the way that the business should be. It's the way that wrestling should be, but we've, you know, hyper centralized everything so much. And now we've given so much power to the fans, unfortunately, that the fans are the ones kind of calling the match now. And that's not how it should be. It shouldn't. I'm, I'm one of those people who go back, goes back 25 years ago. You know, when the fans start chanting boring, you put the guy in the headlock and you're just like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll wait for you to stop. You're not running this match. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it, but like I said, it was, it was such a different thing. And you're right. Today, I have to put you through a ta- you put you through multiple tables. And then when I go to pin you, you kick out at two and a half. And I have this look on my face like, <laughs> Oh my God, I can't, you know, like it was impossible that you kicked out. And they have to do that like five or six, ma- five or six times during an event. I hate that. I remember reading something and I'm sorry for getting That's off good. track, but it's just so funny to talk about. 
in the Observer coverage in 93 for Halloween Havoc 93, when it was Vader versus Cactus Jack in the spin the wheel, make the deal match. And I believe the finish was Jack got tased and then couldn't stay down for the 10 count. Dave Meltzer had something saying like, oh, what's going to happen next? Is there going to be a shooting at the, at the matches? And that's how you're going to keep him down? That's pretty much how it was, like because of maybe because of Jack as well when it came to his style. Like he made a joke talking about what's next, like a crossbow is going to be involved in the match. Like, though it makes sense. It's just it's less is more, and that's the thing. It's just can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, you can't. And I wonder. I mean, I, I watched this this show and I thought it was great for nostalgic purposes, but. Was it entertaining? Yes, to a certain point. But I mean, I thought wrestling was a lot more entertaining five, 10, 15 years later when just more was going on in the ring. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. My thought, too, on the match was uh, because of, I guess, the, you know, um, straight blackness of Steel's tights. I thought when he was doing the foreign object at certain points in the match, I thought he was doing the donut hole because I'm like, does he have pockets on his, because I, I assume that he would have put it in the front of his tights, but he had it at the back too, kind of right near his, like his ass. <laughs> so I'm like, is there a, po- is there a pocket back there? Cause I was looking too, like when he was kind of circling the ring and having his hand behind his back, I did, I was like, is he holding something? Cause it, I thought he was doing the donut hole spot, but at the end I noticed, okay, he's got some type of pocket in his back because I did see the, what was it? A ruler? I don't know what it was. Like, I, I was going to say, was it like some kind of knife? I thought it was like, it was like a, a piece ruler, of like a very small ruler. I was going to say, like, it looked like the uh, you know, if you took the tape off of uh, the nub off of uh, the top of a hawk. Yeah, stick, that's what it looked. That's like. pretty much what it is. That's what that's that's what I thought it was. I was like, what is that? But I, but it was so thin. I'm like, type of ruler with like a jagged edge on it. I wasn't. Sure. I mean, and you know, the fans go crazy, went crazy for that sort of stuff, and. Uh, more of that now. We have Chief J Strongbow against Mr. Fuji. Uh, more World War II heel stuff. Uh, we have Mrs. Krieger once again with the salt and just no, she insists the evil spirits remain. I thought Fuji, I was never a big fan of Mr. Fuji, um, but he got heat in the Northeast and he just made me laugh. I mean, they, we're going back to again, World War II. Pearl Harbor, the thoughts at the time were, oh, those Japanese were so sneaky, sneak attacking us. And they conveyed that into wrestling, and no one was better at it than Mr. Fuji. Like, Mr. Fuji is smiling at Mr. Uh, at Chief J. Strongbow in the middle of the ring and bowing, and oh, he's so nice. And, we're, and everyone in the crowd's like, no, we know better, man. You're sneaky. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, this match sucks. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. I, I, you know what? I know, I know that Jay Strongbow is a moment in time, especially when it comes to the Northeast. I know a lot of people, you know, that watch in the seventies have this reverence for Chief Jay Strongbow. One Vince Russo being one of them, but that's neither here nor there. How could I put this? Jay, let me throw this at you. When we it, wouldn't be having this conversation right now if not for Chief Jay Strongbow. He got me into wrestling. Yes, because your favorite, your favorite, your favorite match is, uh, you know, him and uh, Billy White Wolf, uh, the Executioners. Right? Uh, I wouldn't say my favorite match, but I mean, it's it, it's the few. That, that was got the one me that got, it was the one that got you into yeah. wrestling. Yes, right. Yes, yes, and I do remember. See, I got I got a good memory. You do. What happens? Yeah, that's what happens. But no, it's just <laughs> I was surprised because obviously thinking back to you know Strongbow's reverence at the time, the crowd didn't really pop as much as it did for Victor Rivera for Chief J Strongbow. And that's the thing that I wanted to talk about too, 
What did you think? I, I thought Strombo got a strong response. Um, he maybe not the Rivera Morales level, but I, I thought the fans got into him. And, and you got to remember, too, like, you know, okay, this is the second to last match. The crowd's kind of get, getting worn out a little bit. But, uh, you know, one, th- one thing I noticed about Strongbow, when he came back in 1976, you know, I, I didn't look at him and say, oh, my God, this guy's old. But then when he came back again in 82, I was like, whoa, this dude is old. And you know, you had, back then, you had no way of knowing how old the wrestlers were. I found out he was like 52 at the time. While watching this match, here we are, you know, not even 10 years earlier, I look at Strongbow, I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is old, man. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing, too, about, you know, people aging at different rates, too. I still wonder and still think, and again, this isn't a, I'm not trying to pile on Chief J. Strongbow because, you know, he has his, I think he has his merits. I always still think about what if Wahoo McDaniel didn't get in that fight with Phil Zacco about pay and Wahoo was the continued guy instead of Strongbow. Like, I wonder how Wahoo would have worked in uh, New York. Wahoo would have been huge because he was a a huge star with the Jets. And you're right. You know, had he not gotten into whatever he got into with Phil Zacco, I mean, I think, I don't think he would have been as big as Strongbow or Morales, but he would have, in my opinion, he would have been the number two baby face. And he's someone that, you know, could have homesteaded here for a long time. But, you know, they... I mean, they never brought him in. I figured they, you know, after during the Hogan era, why not? But no, never happened. Yeah. And I mean, the only thing that I wonder, too, is just not his work rate, but I know obviously Wahoo's a tough SOB. I wonder how that would have maybe translated with workers and how that would have translated with the fans, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, again, the guy was a, a big star with the Jets. If you lived in New York, you knew who Wahoo McDaniel was. So too bad he couldn't parlay that into more. One thing about Mr. Fuji, I mean, he did the, the, the gimmick where Fuji, you know, he would use the salt to th- get get rid of the evil spirits, but he'd keep a little to use as a foreign object in the match. And all Fuji had to do was touch his trunks and the fans would go nuts. I mean, he had them in the palm right. of his hand. And it was like a salt cube, too. Like, it wasn't actually, you know, at least when it came to later on the match when Strongbow was rubbing it in Fuji's eyes, it was just like a little salt cube because I saw him throw it and the ref threw it (laughs) over his back into the crowd. So, yeah, it's just, and like you said, less is more. And once you build up that kind of routine when it comes to a foreign menace or a heel, the crowd's going to blow. The other thing that I wanted to mention that I laughed at, at least, because I think that you might get a kick out of it. You might laugh. You might not. This is the thing. I'm trying material here on the show, guys. I'm, I'm sure. To just try out your material and stick. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm not like, I'm not like, you know, the wrestling humorist Scott Cornish, but I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> Noted wrestling so, humorist Scott Cornish. <laughs> Noted wrestling humorist. Pardon me. I apologize. You can get at me afterwards and give me some heck. <laughs> I was laughing when Strongbow was standing there during Fuji's ritual and he was standing there with, you know, no, straight at attention, and I, he was positioning his body in a weird way. Like, he was standing kind of straight like a statue, and I thought, I'm like, is he trying to fit himself for that legendary iron lung that he's always talking about? <laughs> Especially to have a match in? Because he looked, he just, he was standing there so weird. Like, And again, I notice all these weird things, too, so I, I hope that you have, like, some semblance of what I'm talking about. But he's just standing there like a statue, kind of rotated on one foot, and he's just watching. 
watching Fuji stuff, and I'm like, well, maybe he's getting ready to get in the iron lung. That, that, that was, you know what? It's one of those things I have seen so many times that I did not even notice it. Um, but Strongbow, they, he did the, the stereotypical Native American thing in wrestling, and that, you were standing in that weird stance was kind of a takeoff on that. Like, not that I know of of Indians like standing like that, but I knew Strongbow did it, and I just figured, okay, that's what they do. I guess I don't know. I was a little kid, right? And especially when it came to him, you know, his comeback spot a little bit, he would, you know, do his um, jingle dance kind of movement and move his feet quite a bit. And so the fans loved it. it. All fed in, it fed into exactly, and 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 that's the thing that that's the allure of Strongbow that I understand for a lot of people was just that. You know, it's it's a moment in time. Like I said, it's the Cowboys and Indians. You want to root for the Native American at the time, and he was cool. You know, and then I understand his appeal in that regard. You know, you you don't have to feel uh, guilty about like not getting into. I know. I'm, tr- I'm trying to babyface myself here. <laughs> Anything bad? I know. I like again. I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying not to be the member of the Chief Chase Strongbow Fan Club, but. Uh, He's not my favorite, but I understand, like I said, I'm, I'm trying to contextualize it. I'm trying to be more open-minded when it comes to some of these, this older wrestling. Cause like I've told you and other people, like WWWF and WWF isn't my favorite stuff to watch because of the pace. But like I said, this has its merits. I'm pointing out stuff that I think is interesting, but yeah, I mean, it, 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 it was okay. But again, Strongbow, not my cup of tea. Now, one thing about this match, Fuji, I thought, was a terrible worker, except for one thing. He really could take some really good bumps. And every time he took one, once again, the fans ate it up. And when Strongbow turned the tables on him and it was Mr. Fuji being blinded by salt, I mean, the crowd went wild. They were very much into that whole ha ha ha, the heel got what he had coming to him, even if the baby face cut a corner a little bit, you know, threw a punch, turned the tables, they ate that up. Yes, they did. And yeah, Fuji did take some really good back bumps, especially off of the rope too. Yeah. I don't know if I have too much else to add, but uh, yeah, I mean, Fuji for, for all you could say in terms of him being boring, obviously as a manager. And like I said, between Fuji and Tanaka, I would definitely take Tanaka over Fuji, but yeah, I mean, it was serviceable. It was great. They did this long, horrible spot in this match. We have to mention this, where Mr. Fuji had Chief J. Strongbow in some sort of a nerve hold, where he basically grabbed like the, the top of his eyes. His pecs. The pecs, thank you. And Chief J. Strongbow could not lift his arms to defend himself. This is crazier than a sleeper hold, Jace. You know what? And, and, I, and I noticed this, too. I'm sorry for interrupting. I noticed that... They did this in the Tanaka Olympico match, too, I'm pretty sure. I do remember seeing that spot where he grabbed his pecs. You're right, he did. Um, it was just shorter, and Fuji did it twice, and they did it for like two or three minutes at a time. Literally nothing is going on here, but the fans are cheering on Chief J Strongbow to get out of this hole that makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> anyway, final match. Haystacks Calhoun against Moondog Lonnie Maine. Uh, Jace- Lonnie Maine, Moondog Maine, is the certified oldest 28-year-old in recorded history. I couldn't believe he was that young. He looked like crap. Wow. Yeah, he looked... I, I, this was my first time seeing a, a Lonnie Maine match. Um, obviously, I knew about him and his 
ragged ways when it comes to, you know, him in Oregon and Portland mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, I liked Vince's quote. I didn't know if he was referencing, I, cause I had to look at my notes afterwards. I didn't know if he was referencing Haystacks Calhoun or Lonnie Main, but he said he looks like a human box car. <laughs> And I'm thinking to myself, well, if he said that about Lonnie Maine, I could see Lonnie Maine maybe resembling the inside of a boxcar, maybe in the 1950s or 1960s, where maybe there's hay laying around or dust. Or a whole bowl. Maybe that's probably what he meant. I was going to say, uh, I was going to say there was probably a, a transient gentleman maybe riding the dragon or chasing the dragon's tail. I don't know. I mean, I don't know about that kind of stuff. I don't know about drugs, but I could probably see Lonnie Maine probably shooting up heroin and going nuts. Like, <laughs> I couldn't imagine that. I, I could probably see it. Like, that's the thing. A human boxcar. I'm like, that makes sense. He could probably be part of, like, the beat generation, you know, just hanging out in the boxcar. A little, like, Herbert Hunky kind of thing, you know? So, you never know. He he looked awful. And speaking of looking awful, this is Haystack Calhoun God. when he was still kind of young. And, I mean, he was every bit as bad as Andre the Giant was in, like, 1989, 1990. I mean, he could barely move as guys who weigh or at least uh, are said to weigh 601 pounds. I mean, no surprise the guy can't move. But, I mean, he couldn't even throw a punch, man. It was It was hard to watch. Yeah, this was pretty bad. And again, I I knew what I was kind of getting into, but I've seen Haystacks Calhoun, I don't want to say work, but I've seen him have a match before, and it pretty much what it was. It was just a big guy throwing his weight around. Um, I wondered if he maybe shit his pants, maybe when he was going in the corner, because I know that there's legends of Haystacks Calhoun, you yeah. know, crapping his pants in the ring against the wrestlers. <laughs> and I remember seeing a funny, you know... Um, Headline saying Haystacks drops a load. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. It, it, and again, it, this, when it comes to this match, it was what it was. You know, Lonnie Maine sold the best that you can when it, you have a 600 pound guy sitting on your chest. So yeah, this wasn't good. No. And, you know, let's, let's be honest. I didn't think it was good either, but, you know, we're at the end of this two hour show and, you know, not exactly, uh, 1990s level all Japan wrestling going on here. And it was, I enjoyed it, but there were times when it was a little bit of a grind, especially the, the end here. I mean, it was only a six minute match. Jace, one thing, and, and they did all the fat guy spots too, where, you know, Calhoun, like, Yes. Mains to the corner and squash him. And, you know, the fans got into that. Um, I mean, Haystacks Calhoun was, I've heard that he was Andre the Giant before Andre the Giant was. Uh, you know, he was a big attraction. And I know growing up uh, near a wrestling arena that had WWF wrestling every Friday night, you know, 75, 76, people would be talking about, oh, wow, Hel- Haystacks Calhoun's in town tonight, you know, when I was in school in like 75, 76, and 78, 79, not as much. I mean, his, th- that gimmick kind of wore out. And I think Andre might have had a lot to do with it. Yeah, and that makes total sense. I always wondered, too, because I know Haystacks Calhoun had a lot of tag titles with people. I always wondered how they would lose because you would think that. You know, if you have a giant person in one team, that'd be pretty hard to maybe get the titles off of them. So I always wonder who did the job in those matches, if it was his partner or maybe they kind of tripped up Calhoun and maybe used his momentum against him and he, you know, fell and couldn't get up. I don't know. I don't want to use the stereotypes against larger people, especially 600 pound people, but 
that's always a thought that always came to my mind. I wonder who always did the job when it came to getting titles off of. Oh, Calvin. it was it was always the the other guy. It was Tony Garea or whoever it was that you know, just the the weaker link in the team. One thing I noticed, Jace, and I I I picked up on this probably late '80s when I first started getting the Observer, but I didn't pick up on it until then, and I should have. Almost, like almost meaning 95% of the time at major arenas and 100% of the time at spot shows, they always sent the fans home happy. The the babyface won the last match. I don't know how I never picked up on this. Yeah, absolutely right. And I didn't know about that until maybe 10 years ago, <laughs> once I started getting more into wrestling. But yeah, when it comes to WWF stuff, it's always leaving the fans happy. Whereas something like, you know, Jim Crocker Promotions, it was always, you know, mm. leaving them angry because they want to buy tickets to see the chase and they want to see the revenge. So it's just interesting, um, different dynamics when it comes to wrestling promotions too. My last thing about the match, and this is the one thing that really popped me because I love fans getting into it with wrestlers. Uh, when Vince was going over the VTR, when it was going into the finish, you could hear somebody in the background in live time yelling, fat boy. <laughs> and I laughed. Uh, it, it was, it was an interesting show. It was nowhere near as bad as I thought it was going to be. No, no, it wasn't. And yeah, it was, it was definitely an interesting look at a, a different time in, in brilliant really in, in America, in our culture. Huh, absolutely. Absolutely. And my thought process, too, is, you know, you know, I was a little bit skeptical when you wanted me to do the show with you. And I'm like, oh, why me? This could be a well, no, no. But I was thinking, I'm like, this could be this is the make or break in our friendship. <laughs> and I was like, this, this, this could this could really hurt it. <laughs> no, but in all honesty, though, like it, like I said, I wanted to come into it with an open mind. Uh, this, like I said, this wasn't bad. I will definitely try to give more WWF stuff a chance from the 70s and 80s. And like I said, I've been listening back to your other shows with other people like Jamie Ward and talking about, you know, 1981, 1982 and other guests that you have on. So that's helped. I will definitely try to watch some other stuff and I might have to report back to you and see how it goes. Jace, I'm going to be honest with you. I really believe you should channel your energy in a different direction. I am, you know, I'm not uh, so naive to think that like this was actually something good. It's, it's just what we grew <laughs> up on and that's what it was. We, we watched it every Saturday. We went to the Boston garden or in Jamie's case, the Philadelphia spectrum regularly. Uh, we went to the spot shows and you know, like it—that's it, it, all it is. It's like nostalgia. It's like you know, hearing a song from you know when you were in junior high, and you're like, oh, that's that's cool to hear again. But like you know, it's it's just a bring you back thing. I like I said, I wouldn't recommend trying to get into this, but if that's what you would like to do, I'd love to hear about it. Absolutely. And talking about songs for junior high, I don't know if I want to hear Mambo Number no. Five by Lou Bega again for quite a long time. So, but something further I down the chain that. that, like, you really haven't heard <laughs> since you were in junior high. Like, oh yeah, I you know takes it takes you back in time. Lincoln Park, yeah. There let's you do it. go. All right, and Chase, <laughs> you have been as usual a wonderful guest. Thank you for taking the time and coming on Stick to Wrestling. Thank you so much for having me, John. I appreciate right. it. And I want to thank uh, Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all of the great work he does. Believe me, Lou's a big deal. And I want to thank everyone for listening. We'll be back next week. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.